This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey guys, quick thing. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by Mook Delivery, bringing you the food you love. Mook Delivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with Mook Delivery. So the only question left to say is, are you in? Order now on the McDonald's app and you can get reward points delivered too. So the ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus, rewards registration required, points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to the Guna Talk. Back again with you guys for another show and another episode of our Canton Simeu series show, which I'm joined by Harry Simeu every single week, altern- alternating, I should say, on both this channel and the Chronicles of Aguna, which you can, of course, find the link to in the description. If you want to check out episode two, you can by going and listening on Harry's channel, although we are, of course, uploading all of the audio forms of these shows to both of our feeds as well. Harry, how are you doing, mate? Are you well? Are you good? Yeah, all good. All good. Trying to shake off a bit of man flu, but it's all good. Hmm. I'm, I'm surviving. <laughs> good stuff. How are you? Man. Yeah, yeah. I'll just I'll say it's been a bit of a, a mad week, to be honest, but uh, it's uh, it's nearly done. And uh, I've got, you know, I, I, one day off at the weekend, which I'm going to enjoy. But uh, other than that, yeah, it's also been pretty hectic. So uh, I'm, it's just it's the international break. It's strange to be so feel so overwhelmed when there's no Arsenal going on, if that makes sense. Yeah, I felt a little bit like that as well. I've been doing a bit of work around the whole Wenger film and I was at the Wenger event with David Dean on Monday night as well. So it's felt like a really intense week when you consider that there's been no no actual action. Mm. Uh, so I know what you mean, but yeah, nice that the weekend's coming up. And, and like you, uh, I've got a bit of an easier weekend coming this time around, so I'm going to make the most of it. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Absolutely. I mean, it's been an interesting week. Of course, we've seen Emil Smith-Rowe get called out to the international team, which I haven't yet got your thoughts on because last time we spoke on your channel, one of the things that you talked about was, of course, with your your heritage, your attachment to the England side isn't necessarily as, as powerful as mine, shall we say. So was you is it a little bit kind of a double-edged sword seeing him called up for yourself to the team? Um, My opinion was that I don't really care. Like, it, it doesn't yeah. really bother me either way but the the good side of it obviously is it's a massive confidence boost for the young man and you know it's a reward for yeah. the, the fine form that he's been in he's really added uh, a lot to his game in the last you know few weeks he's been contributing goals which is something we all called for him to do so yeah I mean it's probably uh, while I don't it doesn't really bother me whether he's playing for England or not from a personal viewpoint mm. I think from the player's viewpoint it probably is a positive yeah yeah, absolutely. I, I, to be fair, I was thrilled to see him get called up. I think that, I mean, at the end of the day, if we want to be back where we want to be, which is, of course, at the absolute top level, then we're going to get players that are playing in international competitions because the best players play for their countries. And so if we want to get back to winning, challenging for titles and back in the Champions League, we're going to need the best talent and they're going to be playing international football. So it's kind of a, you know, it's catch-22 with that sort of thing. So it's good to see him there. It's good to see him getting that experience, playing with other players. Of course, he's only going to gain some some really good skills and, and develop from that. So we look forward to seeing what happens on, I believe it's Friday that England are playing. So uh, especially against San Marino, surely if he plays, he'll get a goal or two or seven against them. <laughs> Fingers crossed. We'll see what happens. Um, but the, the basis of today's show, Harry, I went for the topic of kind of this discussing whether or not what we've seen in this 10-game unbeaten run is sustainable. And what I mean by that is kind of looking at, you know, we've played 
a plenty of a variety of, of oppositions. We've played relegation fodder in the form of Watford and Burnley. We've played, of course, against Norwich and got 1-0 wins against all of those. We didn't dominate those games with lots of goals. What we did do is we ground out performances and we got the three points in all of them. We've played some what we would describe as decent sides in Spurs. We can say they're decent, although they're not having the best of times, but they're a side that, of course, there's issues over a number of seasons, especially while Harry Kane's been banging in the goals. We beat Leicester away from home, who proved to be a very good side, obviously battered Man United at uh, at the King Power Stadium. They then got into really good form, winning away at Watford, which is a big result in the Premier League right now. We know that firsthand. And, uh, and you know, we've just kept on going. We pulled out last-minute goals against Crystal Palace to keep this run going. We've got Liverpool next. Is what Arteta's doing at the moment sustainable? Are we showing enough to prove that it's sustainable? And where can we kind of move from here? I think it's, you know, obviously there are elements to our game that you look at and you feel like they still need to be improved upon. You know, I think that we could still do with probably controlling games a little bit more. Um, I think we've got into this place now where I'm not saying we deliberately sit off, but we we trust in our defence a lot more now. And, and there's not that kind of desperation to kind of be at 100% in terms of our attacking play all of the time. I don't know if that's down to being maybe a little bit fatigued at times, obviously not being able to maintain that level for 90 minutes, which very few teams can do. But I think there is this kind of, as I say, a, a deeper and greater trust in that back line now that we can have those periods in games and more often than not, we should come through them unscathed. So I think that's part of the development of this team. You know, I think it is something that in an ideal world you don't want to see. And in an ideal world, you do want to see your team on the front foot a little bit more. But once you've got the goals, I think being able to kind of trust in or, or have a lead, once you can trust in that back line, I think that's massive. And I think it's something that Arsenal haven't had for many, many years. Is it sustainable? I mean, it's very, very hard to say, Tom, because football is one of those games where there's just so many different factors involved from week to week, you know, fitness, individual performances, collective performances, refereeing decisions. There's just so many factors that can influence a, a game and influence a result. And I think you, you know, I think the the fair view to come at this from or fair angle to come at this from right now is, is one that's a little bit mixed. You know, we are getting the results. We have improved dramatically in terms of results and we are on a positive run and you should take all of the positives out of that. But I still think we should be mindful of thinking that this Arsenal team are now the, the complete outfit because we know that there are uh, a lot of issues that, that still need addressing. We know that there will be times where what we're producing isn't good enough and we know that there are better teams than us out there. We know that it's a team made up of a lot of young players and that breeds naturally inconsistencies. So I think, you know, whether you want to... I guess the question, where is this sustainable, depends on what you think the outcome at the end of the season should be. If you're asking me if staying in and around the top six is sustainable, I think it is. If you're asking me if we can maintain the form that probably puts us, I think, third maybe in the Premier League form guide, then I'd probably say that's probably not. Mm. So it depends on what way you're looking at it. But I mean, what's your take on it? Are you confident that we can maintain this level? If... We were, say, you know, scoring goals uh, in these games, like we were dropping in three goals here, four goals here, but say conceding a couple. And we were kind of, you know, winning goals by just outscoring the opponent. I think that would breed more of a, a doubt than the way in which we have gone about this run. Because what we've established is that our defence is, you know, it's one of the best in the league. And, and we have got a side here, like, if you... If you take away that first three games where we conceded nine goals, where we didn't have Tommy Asu, didn't have Ramsdale, didn't have White, didn't have Gabriel, it's a whole new defence now. We've added a lot more quality to it. They've played together. They've been coached during that period as well, and they've improved. All of Ben White, I think, has improved. Ramsdale, I think, has just proven to be a very good player. Tommy Asu has grown throughout the league as well, and Gabriel has kind of put aside the issues that he had at the end of last season and has you know come back to the floor after his injury from Brazil. With that foundation that has kind of been there and the fact in which we've we've kept how many clean sheets have we kept three against Watford Burnley and uh and against Norwich we had a clean sheet against Leicester I'm trying to think of a clean sheet obviously against Wimbledon and against uh who was the other team we played in the cup it was Leeds wasn't it Leeds yeah yeah so we've kept a lot of clean sheets I think it's only four goals we've let in across these 10 games that tells me that there's something to move forward from that you don't tend to see like runs of form 
from a defensive aspect, if you know if, if you know what I mean, you tend to see kind of runs of form from a goal scoring side of things than you do from clean sheets because when you're in form, things click, you're scoring a lot better. But defensively, you can kind of maintain that solidity across a season much easier than you can kind of a high goal scoring rate. So I think that, that it's more it's more likely that a run of form that we're seeing at Arsenal right now is sustainable in comparison to say if we were scoring, you know, quite a lot of goals during this period, but also letting in a fair few more goals than we are. Do you think that does that make sense? Yeah, I, I see where you're coming from. And I and I tend to agree with that. I think, you know, it's one of those where I think the reason for that is you look at this Arsenal team and you feel like because of the elements that we have improved in, i.e. the defensive solidarity and the ability to manage games of football, mm. you feel like we don't always need to be at our brilliant best to win a game. Whereas in years gone by, you know, we had to score three sometimes because we'd probably concede two. And now you're looking at this Arsenal side and you feel like we only need that one moment. We only need that set piece. We only need that mm. you know one particular incident and one moment to moment sorry of individual brilliance mm. and then we stand a very good chance of winning that game and it goes back to what i was saying that defensive solidarity um it is obviously the biggest positive i would say that we've seen from from this new look arsenal side and that is is sometimes in a lot of people's eyes undervalued missed because we all have this you know desire to see attacking free flowing football mm. but being defensively solid and being defensively sound is, is probably just as if not more important. Yeah, I think it's it's certainly an aspect of Arsenal's game that if you look back over the last decade or so, defensive solidity is not something you'd associate with it. It's something that we've definitely seen an improvement of through personnel and coaching since Arteta's come into the team. It's just that the other end of the pitch has suffered so greatly. Our kind of ability to score and dominate games with high levels of or high frequency of chances has slipped down from it was under Wenger. And of course, even under Unai Emery, like we played a style under Unai Emery that, yes, allowed the opposition to, to come on to us a lot more. And we suffered a lot of chances conceded in comparison to previous tenures. But I think we created more under Unai Emery than we have done under Arteta across kind of his tenure so far. And and that's something that has been sacrificed in order to improve us defensively, which, to be honest, if, you, if you're asking me what's the biggest priority in a team, is it scoring goals or stopping the opposition from conceding? I build on that foundation because I think you can develop a side to score goals easier than you can develop a side to to solve a problem of, say, conceding a lot of goals. I think that's, that's a harder problem to solve. So Arteta being able to do that allows us to build forwards. And, you know, we can do that by adding players, but we can also do that by developing the players that we already have. We know that Smith-Rowe at 21, Saka at 20, uh, Erdogan at 22. These are players that are going to get better and they're only going to improve. Martinelli, of course, you bring into that as well. It's the players that are there and established strikers like Aubameyang and Lacazette that at this stage are only going to go if we're being honest, backwards because of the age that they're at, we now are going to need to see investment in that area. One thing I think, Harry, that we've seen is that the investment in the recruitment side of the team has also improved under Edu. Like the look at the six signings we've made, you look at the signings we made last January, and as we go into this January window, you must also be confident and be much more open to putting trust in someone like Edu to make the right decisions. Yeah, you have to be. You have to be. And look, you know, there's been a few... Uh, there's been a few transfers under his kind of stewardship where mm. we've looked and gone, I don't know about that one, don't know if I'd have done it. And actually, in hindsight, it didn't work out very well. But there isn't a sporting director or whatever you want to call them in the world that has a completely 100% success mm. rate in that in that department because it's just impossible. There's such an element of risk to transfers. There's such a, um, you, you know, you can never really know exactly how a transfer is going to pan out. And I think that you have to say overall, him and, and Arteta as a combination have worked that side of things pretty well. You know, a lot's been kind of said about what they've done so far. And a lot of the criticism I hear from people is, well, well they say to me, first of all, I, I don't think they know what they're doing. And when I kind of ask to dig into it a little bit more, mm. you know, what is it that you don't like? What is it that you've been unhappy with? The common thing I get back is, well, we didn't move the players on or we didn't get enough players in, uh, enough money in, sorry, for the players that mm. we moved on. And my response to that is always, that's not 100% in their hands. You know, yes, it, to a degree, if you're a good negotiator and you, you're good at what you do, you can maximise 
the revenue that you bring in from that particular area. But ultimately, yeah. somebody's got to want to buy these players. Somebody's got to want to pay for these players. If there's no demand, then the price is going to be uh, relatively low, isn't it? So I think when people sit there and they say Edu's done a bad job or that, um, you know, or, or that he and Arteta as a combination have not really worked because they failed to move players on for mm. uh, big amounts of money. I think you need to stop, pause and, and think about why that actually is. Yeah, it's for me when we go into this January window, and actually, you look at you brought up, say, Liverpool um, and kind of what they've done uh, over those years. But actually, what you, what you said was just talking about how no one has a clean record. And Michael Edwards, who's leaving Liverpool, um, has got his own problems. Like, you look back at the season after they won the Champions League, they didn't bring in anyone. They, they brought in, I think it was Sepp van der Berg that came in and then they brought in yeah. Mina in the January. Now, they won the league that season uh, because obviously everyone that they had stayed fit and they built a really good squad. But because they didn't invest kind of in the depth side of things, the following season, after they won the league and they were trying to defend that title, when they had that crisis at the back and they lost Van Dijk and they lost Gomez and they lost Matip for different points throughout the season, Fabinho was also unfit at points, because they'd not invested yet in kind of the depth, especially in the defensive area and maybe in the deep midfield area, they really suffered. And that's what I think that Edu's got to, and I've got an article coming out on this later tonight, and that's, that's a very selfish plug. But when you've got <laughs> Edu um, has got to kind of learn from that, I think. And I know that we're in completely different spectrums right now. We're looking to try and just get back into Europe and they're obviously trying to challenge for titles. But at the same time, you've got to look at the fact that if we get back into Europe this season or if we get into the Champions League, that yes, we need a striker. Yes, we need a central midfielder. I think they're the two marquee kind of positions you look at and you go, yeah, those two can transform Arsenal into that next stage and take us on. But we also need to not forget that signings like Sambi Lukonga and signings like Nuno Tavares are still going to be needed. This is why I'm looking now at some of that, that link to Tyler Adams at RB Leipzig. is quite interesting because he... I think gives you good support in the midfield. And I think he gives you really good backup to Tommy Asu, say, if we need a right back as well. Yeah. And it's signing players that, you know, it's being a little bit smart about your business, spending money in the right way. He's got a 32 million pound buyout clause, I think. That, and ironically, that would be our second most expensive signing since Ben White in the last 12 months. Every one of those other five signs remain in the summer, all less than that. Erdogan came in next at 30 million. Tavares, of course, seven odd million longer, 20, well, I think it was just under 20, about 15, 16, 70 million. And Ramsdale, of course, came in at 24. So Tommy Asu, 22, I think it was, or just below that. So he would be the next expensive. And it shows that we're kind of making these savvy pieces of business. We're not going overboard with Vlaovic levels of signings, are we? We're looking at kind of these deals that are a little bit smart, that give you that sell on value, give that a development of the price tag and of the player but also are having an impact on the team because they're quality players. We're not just going, oh, Willian's there for a free. Uh, let's bring him in because he's got that Prem experience. I think Edu's learned from that. And I think that summer was really evidence. And I think now we see with these links to say Vlaovic, who, yes, is more of an ex expensive kind of look, but he's, again, a young player with that potential, Tyler Adams. And we're seeing Kulusevski linked as well today, who is another young player, that's got, you know, potential. It hasn't necessarily worked out maybe the way that Juventus thought it would, but there's a lot of competition for places there and, and he's suffered with some stuff, I think, in the past. I mean, you'd be able to tell me. I mean, what do you think of both the links to to Adams and, and Kulusevski? Yeah, I mean, the Tyler Adams one, I've got to be honest, I don't know a great deal about him. What I've seen is um, he, he looks a promising young player. Obviously, the versatility thing is, is a big mm. deal. And one of the things that people will point to first when kind of making a case for him. So I'm not against that signing. I've been saying for a while that a midfielder is is necessary. And I think that's got to be the priority going into January uh, above anything else. Am I completely convinced we're going to do it in January? I don't know. Uh, yeah. But it would be the thing I'd be looking at anyway uh, in terms of positions. Uh, Kulisevsky, I quite like him. I think he can blow hot and cold though. Mm. Um, but I guess that's kind of... Again, we keep going to this thing of that's what happens when you sign young players. And it just depends on, on whether Arsenal back themselves to get the maximum out of him. What you end up with is, you know, a, a so you look at the summer and, and we signed six players or whatever it was. And everybody kind of went, well, Arsenal are the however biggest spenders in the country. You know, they've spent mm. more money than anybody, et cetera, et cetera. And people always overlook the fact that we'd spent it on six players. And ultimately, what you're doing is you're making lots of small bets with the potential to pay out big. And, mm. and somebody like Nuno Tavares 
what was it, eight million pounds? Yeah. You know, that kind of deal that has the potential to to go on to be a, a 20, 30 million pound player. You look at Sambi Lakonga, another one who has the potential to be worth far more in the future. And that's what mm. Arsenal were doing here. They're making lots of small bets with the odd big bet mixed in there, like Ben White, like Aaron Ramsdale. And I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a mixture in the in the way we go about our transfer business. We'll continue, as you said, those signings are needed where we bring in the lower profile players that maybe aren't being signed with a view to having a, a place in the first team immediately. We'll be doing some of those and we'll be bringing in big players for big money that we feel will enhance the side immediately. And I think that's important to have a balanced transfer strategy. And that's something we've not seen in recent years. You know, we went through this. We have to be careful because we've got the Emirates Stadium to pay off. Then we went from that to, well, we've paid it off now so we can just be <laughs> stupid and, and spend 35, 40 million pound on players that maybe don't warrant that. And, and it's just, yeah, there was no balance. And now it feels like we're finding that. And that's why the whole situation feels a lot more sustainable. Mm, yeah, it does. And I think that when you look at what this club needs to be under a manager like Arteta, it, it's not going to be a, it can't be hot and cold, really. And I think it has been a bit under Arteta, of course. We've seen periods of real low and we've seen periods of, of real high, FA Cup and then down to 16th place at this time last year. So it's it's about building a side and building kind of a, a culture that now is going to be consistent. And like, yeah, when this unbeaten run is going to come to an end. Like we know that it could be in the next game against Liverpool. We can't lose our heads if it is. Obviously, I want to see a decent performance in that game. I don't want to see us get battered like we saw against Man City. I mean, if we go back, say if we have an exact same re replica of the Man City performance, but with Tomiyasu, Ramsdale, White, Gabriel involved, Partey possibly back for that game. If we have a repeat of that, then it does, that would be evidence that we haven't necessarily progressed as much as maybe we thought. But if we go into if we go to Anfield, we remain solid, we can lose that game. But if there's an amount, if there's a performance there, if there's a real kind of tangible evidence that we are progressing, we are improving, then I'm okay. Like I, I can I can, you know, I can take the loss on the chin and say, we've made progress there. We haven't won at Anfield in a, in a long, long time in the league. And it's going to take time before we can really muster a performance in a side that's going to be able to compete there. I feel like we can compete in that game. And I think that the games against Brighton and certainly West Ham have showed that Liverpool can be got at. There are kind of chinks in the armour and we can get in between them and, and, and play our style. But it is going to require us to be at the absolute maximum level of our concentration. And then say if... You know, it might be Liverpool, it might not be that game, it might be a few games down the line, it could be against United in a really surprising turn of events that we do end up losing, which I would hate, obviously, for obvious reasons, but it's about then how you react to that first loss. If we go and hit that first loss and then have a period of games and we just completely fall away. I remember back to last season, I think it was, we won at Old Trafford uh, for yeah. the first time since 2006. And then I think we lost three home games in a row in the league. I think it was Burnley we lost, Villa we lost, I think Southampton might have been the other although I think we drew that game was, so it, we Leicester? Definitely, was it Leicester it might have been Leicester yeah with the where Barnes started in kind of a false nine and then they just hit they subbed on Vardy and scored like at the, right at the end after we yeah Brendan Rodgers just tactically outclassed or whatever it was but it was three games I think in a row that we just lost and uh it, it was really damaging and that set us that really put us down the table and going into that boxing game day boxing day game against Chelsea we had to get something from it and obviously we turned things around in the second half but it's going to be about Harry when we lose that game how we respond to it yeah absolutely you know that's a massive test of character everybody can bark out instructions and and jump up and down and be seen to be kind of spurring on the team when things are going well it's when those difficult moments come that you can really, really make your judgments. And, um, you know, it's one of the things that Arsene Wenger says in this, is in this new documentary is that he's spoken to so many champions from so many different sports and walks of life. And one of the things they always say is that they remember the defeats more than they remember the victories, mm. because that is, you know, a true competitor feels hurt by defeats and the the hurt that a defeat brings outweighs sometimes the joy that a victory brings and that's just mm -hmm. the way it is at the elite level sports uh, kind of or in the elite level sports world and I think yeah I think you're absolutely right we are going to see when we do suffer that defeat how this team bounces back but I guess a question for you is do you think that this run that we've been on now and, and the confidence that has built is enough that if we do go and get beat at Liverpool that people can just shake it off 
you know, and, and, and just continue? Or, or do you expect there mm-hmm. to be a bit of a wobble? I think there, I expect there to be kind of a couple of routes. There'll be the route, which is you've got people out there that Arsenal at the moment can do no well, no matter what we do. And as long as Arteta's kind of the manager, that's it. It's uh, as long as he's there, they're not going to be happy. So if we lose against Liverpool, no matter how we lose, it's going to be a disaster. It's going to be, you know, people coming out of the woodwork again. The other route is going to be, uh, kind of a, a disappointment um i think uh, maybe just kind of the reality hitting that we aren't going to stay unbeaten if we do lose that game and then there, there'll be the other route of the kind of the you know the, the optimism the look this is it wasn't a free hit but it was a it was an opportunity to show what we've we've made of ourselves maybe we will maybe we won't if we have a really poor performance then i think quite rightly you'd be able to criticize but if we do lose that game and we've battled and we've really tried to maybe get something or we got a little bit unlucky during that game and people can put that into context, I think that hopefully there'll be enough people out there to kind of balance out maybe the hyperbolic, you know, inevitable reaction that will happen if we lose that game. So it's... What about, what about yeah, from within on. the squad though? What Do you think the squad have built enough confidence themselves that they can, they could shake a defeat at Liverpool off and just get on with it? I hope so. I feel like there is enough now kind of, I think there's been a lot of change, of course. I think the fact that the six signings we made are all involved in the first team now, there's a bit of freshness, isn't there, about kind of the side. Mm. There's there's a little bit of, uh, you know, it's a little bit of new about the team. You've also got kind of the fact that a lot of the youth players are, are training the squad. And you might not look at that as something that goes into the Liverpool game and you'd be right in terms of what's happening on the pitch. But just an amount of freshness. I think when we watched, I mean, I was at the Emirates for the Leeds game in the Cup. And seeing the celebration of the fringe players when Chambers scored, that shows me that it's kind of a community, that togetherness that's there between the players. And that Arteta is really galvanising. And even if players aren't necessarily playing every week, there's still kind of this real good feel-good factor, I suppose, around the team. So, yeah, I feel like if we lose that game, there is the character, there's the the kind of level-headedness to understand of where we are right now, where Liverpool will be, and that we just got to go to the next game, which I think is, what, Newcastle after that one? Yep. So... I think they'll look at that next game and they'll be like, look, we lost. We'll put that in a box and we'll move on to the next one. So, yeah, I would be I would be confident. Do you think that there's enough now in this team to turn it around? Yeah, I think there's enough within the team now. I think we've got some really strong characters in there and I think they will um, we'll look back at the, the 10 games that we've been unbeaten or whatever it is in the lead up to that and say, well, even if we lose at Liverpool, there's enough positives to take from that that we shouldn't be completely thrown off. I think... Going back to your original point, it's about um, it's about managing kind of the, and again, this is not something that we have any control over, but it's about managing the kind of, um, you know, the, the reaction that's going to come from all the people outside of the actual squad and outside of the club's walls, which is obviously the problem and it's what mm. ultimately creates narratives. But I think we've got a lot to be positive about. I think we've got a lot to be excited about. Look, we're unbeaten in, in 10, I think it is, in all competitions. If you only lost once every 10 games over the course of the season, you'd, you'd finish pretty high up the table come the end of the campaign, wouldn't you? So mm. that's that's the thing as well. You know, you've got to be, sometimes you've got to stop, pause and be realistic about where you want to be and, and where you expect us to be. Because if we go if we do lose and then we go on another unbeaten run of six or seven games for example Mm. that's still going a long way to kind of closing the gap between where we are and where we want to be and 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 I don't like the whole you know the the reactionary kind of over the top scrutiny that the team comes under every time we hit a defeat as if all the other teams in the Premier League never lose games. Yeah. I mean, you know, we were starting off the season talking about Manchester United. People made them, you know, out to be one of the title favourites. You've seen very quickly that, you know, it's not a given that even a team with Cristiano Ronaldo up front and that have bought Jaden Sancho for 70 plus million plus Rafael Varane in the summer are, are going to be up there. It's just, it's not a given in this league. And the sooner people look at it and understand that and realise that, the sooner they'll they'll stop being disappointed every single week and they'll be able to see a truer reflection of where their team is at and where they should be at and, and then begin to enjoy it again and be invested in the team. Because I really feel like that at the minute. I feel really invested for the first time in a while. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think the fan base is so much more. I mean, I noticed that from just from a content creator perspective, like the engagement that there is that now the feel good factor is back. I mean, it's ironic, isn't it? People talk about kind of like content creators ironically prefer when their team loses because people want to see the reaction. But actually what I've noticed, especially on here, and you may have noticed on your own channel, is that there's far more engagement during this 10 game run because people are just really happy about the club you know, winning and and uh, people want to read stuff. People want to talk about Arsenal again. So it's it's great. Obviously, we everyone likes a bit of drama. Everyone likes when people are angry because it's you know it's good viewing. But I think from this perspective, and certainly I think from the angle that me and you produce content, which is always level-headed and kind of looking at things from where can we go next how can we improve things and and what's going to be the the optimistic kind of way of looking at it and where can we see the positives when things are going well i think we see and i think you guys watching will see that the community is a lot more engaged and a lot more kind of you know perky uh, about things that's for sure um for the last 15 minutes or so we're going to dip into the chat box and uh, we're going to answer some of your questions i know a lot of you are asking questions earlier on so i will scroll up and i'll try and have a go at uh at finding some of the ones from earlier on but keep throwing them into the chat box because we'll be scrolling down to get some of the newer ones as well uh inga uh, asks harry is it smart at all to sell both abamyang and lacazette in the same window new strikers need to time to settle and who are honestly ready to replace them in the squad of course we may lose both we could lose both in the summer lacazette's going to re out a contract abamyang you never know we could look to move on would that be wise and is that affordable no, I don't think you can move both of them on in the summer. I think I think you're right. Strikers need time. And the big, big worry for me would be looking at the alternatives that we currently have within our squad. I don't think any of them are unnecessarily ready to step up and take on that role. I think Laka is going to go. I think that's a given. I think that, you know, from all the signs that we're getting at this moment in time, it looks as though that's going to be the case. I think Enketia will probably go as well. Um, maybe there'll be a U-turn there. I don't know. But at this stage, if I had to bet, I'd say they're both going to leave. And so I think you have to keep hold of Aubameyang. I think that we gave him that big contract, that three-year contract with a view to him seeing it out. I don't think it was done with the intention of selling him after a couple of years. And I think had we been in a place where some of those younger players, maybe that being Nketiah or Balogun, mm -hmm. had shown enough to suggest that they could step up to that role, up uh, up until the point where Aubameyang got into the final year, then maybe that decision would have changed. But, you know, we're, we're fast approaching it. And I don't think that either of them have said or, or, or done enough to say to Mikel mm. Arteta, you can move him on and, and we'll, we'll step up to the mantle. I just don't think they, they're ready. So for me, I'd, I'd keep, I'd definitely be keeping Aubameyang if, if indeed Alexander Lacazette is going to move on. Because I still think he's got a lot to offer. I still think he's a brilliant goal scorer. I know he's got a lot of stick recently around penalty kicks, but <laughs> I think he's been brilliant overall of late. He's worked really hard. He's contributed uh, well for the team. And I think he's set the tone in a lot of ways. So, yeah, I'd, I'd keep hold of him. Yeah, I, I think you have to keep hold of one. I mean, you look at, say... In the summer, we're looking at strikers that are probably going to be in their mid-20s or their early to mid-20s. You've got a 32 turning 33-year-old Aubameyang there to kind of be, you know, a little bit of tutelage for them there as well and that experience. And I think that would be helpful. So, yeah, I, I think that you end up keeping Aubameyang for the final year of his contract next season, especially if we're back in the Champions League. I mean, that would be amazing for him to kind of play that season. Um, Matt, I'll take this question because I know that, Harry, you said you're not kind of the biggest in the know about Tyler Adams. Uh, do you feel the signing of Tyler Adams is another player that's a Jack of all trades type rather than going out and getting an out and out central midfielder. Hey, look, I, I, I talked about this before. I think that what's important is that you sign players of quality. Um, and yes, sure, jack of all trades can sometimes, you know, we think of Ainsley Maitland Niles not necessarily good enough to specialize in any position for Arsenal in a starting consistent place. But if a player is good enough, and if they got, and I think Tyler Adams is certainly showing that he's good enough in a central midfield position, especially in a right wing back position, that he is someone that is going to develop and grow into a really solid player. I think also people get kind of hooked up on the idea that if we sign him, that means that's it, as in we wouldn't then sign someone else. I don't think that's the case. I think that Arsenal showed this summer by surprising everyone how much they spent in a centre-back in Ben White and how much they spent in a goalkeeper in Ramsdale that they will spend if they think that the required quality is needed in certain positions. I think that Adams is, is certainly someone that we should consider looking at because I think he would add significant quality in midfield and at right-back. So I look at him as, a, as you know, yes, a jack-of-all-trades, 
but someone who's not, you know, not a jack of all trades, master of none, but certainly a jack of all trades, but master of some is probably the best way to, to look at it. Um, let's scroll down the chat box and get some of your more recent ones in. Uh, let's go to uh, Nee, who says, uh, Harry, do you think this team will suffer from the phenomenon we see with newly promoted teams? The unknown quantity seeing the number of new players we have and we will get caught out soon. Um, it's an interesting point. It is an interesting point because obviously when you your team does change dramatically, there is that factor of being a bit of an unknown quantity and that does sometimes throw people off. But what I would argue is that the way we're playing in terms of the inverted fullback on the right, the left mm. back bombing on, um, I think a lot of that has been clear from the beginning of our test tenure. A lot of the things that we're now seeing work are things that we've seen him try at various points and I don't think a lot of it is completely new I think what it is is you've got players that are now able to carry out those roles to a T as opposed to what we had before where we had fullbacks like Cedric or Bellerin trying to play like an inverted fullback when that's not the way they'd played throughout their career where we wanted our centre-backs to press higher up the pitch but didn't have the the personnel necessarily to do that where we wanted to leave uh, one midfielder sometimes in the middle of the park alone while we vacated that area to press further up the pitch. And we didn't have Thomas Partey fit and available enough to to be able to do that. So yeah. I think a lot of the the principles of this team are things that we've seen before under Mikel Arteta, but we've never really had the personnel to execute them. I think in time, people will, will start to suss us out like they suss out everybody. But if your philosophy is solid enough and your players are good enough to implement it, then, you know, the best teams in the world are teams with very clear philosophy. So I don't think we should be worried about people sussing us out. The, the responsibility is with Mikel Arteta and the team to, if you do feel like we're at a point where that's happening, is to find all slightly alternative solutions. That's just part yeah. of football management. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mr. Joe Kerr says, should we purchase a project striker like a young 20-year-old? I suppose Karim Adeyemi is a, a decent example at Salzburg. And an established centre-forward like an Inezri, kind of your 24-year-olds, or even in the right circumstances, uh, a, I suppose a reconstruction project in a Luka Jovic-style striker. Mm. I, mean, I mean, just bluntly, Harry, kind of what striker, if you were being realistic, is the one that you would want us to, to kind of pursue? I really like Ed Naziri. Um, he's someone I'm a big fan of. I like the way he plays. I like the way he he has that. And and I've said it for a long time. They're very hard to find. But I think yeah. in the Premier League, you need strikers that have that physical presence, but also have that technical ability. And I think Ed yeah. Naziri is one of the players that has both of those things in terms of his frame, in terms of him being able to be a target, but also being quite sharp being quite technical so I really like him I'm not even completely opposed to the idea of Jovic I think I did a show a little while about uh, a little while back about him and I kind of watched a lot of footage of Luka Jovic and I found him a bit Lacazette like in the way mm. he he's quite happy to to put his body in there and get involved in the the dirty side of the game also found him deceivingly good in the air Luka Jovic for someone <laughs> who's not very big uh scored a lot of headers throughout his career so I like both of those players, but it just depends on on their availability. And, and I guess we've been talking a lot about character. So it will depend on what Mikel Arteta feels is the better fit in terms of their character as well, right? Because mm. that's important. And I think there have been question marks about Jovic in the past. Don't know if they're justified or not. You know, I don't want to make a judgment on the guy because I don't know enough. But, you know, that kind of rings a few alarm bells with me. And it's maybe something that, Arteta would have to explore before making a decision. Yeah, I do too. I think when you look at the strikers that are out there, you, it's not, you know, we're not smitten for, for lots of different players. It's it's quite limited. Uh, and the ones that, you know, are, are even like you, Dominic Calvert-Lewins, you Ollie Watkins, in the Premier League options that, you know, Edu's kind of taken a little bit of a fancy to, to try and sign in with White and Ramsdale, as we've mentioned before that they're going to cost a lot of money and you don't know mm. if we're Arsenal are going to be able to, to sign 
Calvert-Lewin for 60, 70 million odd quid if they want to, or if they want to sign an Ollie Watkins, you imagine that they signed him for 30 million, so they're going to want at least, you know, one and a half times that amount to, to get back a decent profit or maybe even more than that. You have a big strikers like, say, Victor Ozzyman at, at Napoli signed for 70 odd million quid. They're going to want to make a profit. Delorientis is not the easiest guy to, to negotiate yeah. with at all. He's so. a madman. He's a madman. He is indeed. So it's it's tricky um, to, to see where... And obviously clubs are going to know that we're in for a striker and, and they're going to hike those prices up because they don't need to sell necessarily. So we are going to be forced into a situation where the striker that we buy, we are going to have to pay most likely over the odds for. It just depends on if you can find kind of a good deal. I was asked a really good question actually on the Arsenal Way stream this morning that I'll put to you. And I think, it, I think it might've been Vinny actually that asked it. It was one of our members here said about, do you think Arsenal, instead of, you know, going for your big marquee world-class established players need to be a little bit savvier still in the market or sort of continue on the form that they've been. And you say, you look at Vlaovic at Fiorentina signed, I think it was what from, was it from, uh, I want to say like, was it not St. Spezia, was it? It was, it was somewhere... Uh, now, I'll check that up, but I'm pretty sure you were signed for like. Oh, well, I've been partisan Belgrade or something like that. Yeah, I think it was. Um, I, 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 that rings a bell. Partisan Belgrade. Uh, it was Red. Uh, Red yeah, it was Star. Partizan. Partizan, it, it was yeah. at Red Star for his youth, and then he went to Partizan. So yeah, well, knowledge. Wow. Um, but uh, but yeah, when he was signed there for like two million odd quid, and obviously he's gone to do really really well. Do you think that Arsenal do need to kind of look at maybe being a bit smarter so they avoid overpaying or risking a ridiculous fee on a big striker and instead maybe go for, for someone a little bit more left wing? It all comes back to to that thing about having a balanced field, transfer market. <laughs> left wing, left field. That's what I meant. Yeah, go on. <laughs> I think it all comes down to, to having a balanced transfer market again. You know, you, you're not going to be able to get top players anymore without sometimes paying over the odds, right? We, we all understand that. We all know that that's just the way football is at the moment. You know, people very early on recognise a talent, recognise how good they are, recognise what they might be worth in the transfer market, and they'll look to take advantage of that at every opportunity. So I think it's about balance. I think if you, you will have to make signings like that to compete at the very top where you do pay a bit over the odds. But if you can supplement that by making signings that you pay less for, who you still feel can have a strong enough impact, then that's how you find that balance. And that's something that, you know, Arsenal need to be able to do. It's something that Liverpool have done. It's something that Arsene Wenger used to do. You know, I know people talk about, you know, we didn't spend a lot of money in, in his early days. But actually, when you think, for example, what we paid for Thierry Henry, in that day, that was relatively quite a lot of money. Mm, but yeah. it was it wasn't looked at as a as a as a silly thing because of a, how good he turned out to be, but B because we'd also signed somebody like Nicholas Anelka prior to that for 500,000 pounds and sold mm. him for 23, 24 million pounds because we'd signed Patrick Vieira for, for next to nothing and a number of other players. So it's about balancing it out. Nobody's going to go on about the big transfer fee you paid for one player. If you make five or six other signings, for relatively small amounts that go on to be successful ones. You you earn yourself that credit and that breathing space to be able to say, no, actually, I want to put that amount of money on this player. And it's not seen as an issue. So I think it's about balance. But you, you're going to have to, at some point, mate, um, spend big to get the best players. It's just the way football works, I think. Yeah, it is indeed. Uh, and there are obviously a lot of players out there that are going to be pretty much unheard of and that people maybe aren't necessarily tracking, that we're not aware of, that the club are. But... We do need to add quality. And I'll tell, oh, I think it was David Ornstein reveals in, in a piece or in his conversation with Arsblog that he's aware that Edu wants to blend world-class quality with youth. So we've added the youth. What comes next? It must be the world-class quality. So we'll have to look at that. Last question from Matt. And I know Matt's had a couple of questions, but he keeps asking such good ones that I've gone for it again. Um, what role at the club would you give Arsene Wenger if he was to come back like oh, Arteta oh, oh, wants him to? Because I know that you were obviously at the premiere the other night for a Wenger's documentary. Your picture of Arsene Wenger, he must have, you must have been about the hundredth person to ask because he didn't look amused. Like, <laughs> take that picture. Yeah. So do you know what it was? So a mate of mine uh, who I was with, he took a few pictures and mm. you can see in that picture my eyes are half closed 
But in the other two that he took, where Wenger looks a bit more interested, I look even yeah. worse. Oh, no. So I opted to you go You prioritised yourself. Yeah, I had Wenger. to. I had to. I had to. <laughs> but do you know what it was? It, I was probably the last person on the night that asked him for a picture. Mm. Because I'll tell you what, and you, you'll probably find this as well, Tom. When you go to events like this, and, and this for me was like a massive deal, right? Like yeah. I'd... I'd, I'd, I was literally, to put it into context, I was sitting next to David Ornstein during the film. Oh, so we right. had allocated seats and it was like mm. me, uh, my colleague from 90 Min and David Ornstein to my right. Mm. And it was just like, I was, I just had to stop myself going, shit, that's David Ornstein. Shit, that's David Ornstein. <laughs> and I was sitting in a room with David Ornstein, with Edu, with Arteta, with Wenger, with uh, Thierry. Uh, no, Thierry Henry wasn't there. Sorry, he was there on the Monday. Uh, no, he wasn't. He was on the screen. Uh, but mm. you had... You know, uh, David Seaman, Wright, uh, Dixon, all these guys were there. Mm. And all these people that you see on TV and stuff, various other celebrities as well. And you don't want to be that guy that in front of everyone goes up and says, can I get a selfie? Can I get a selfie? Because you're yeah. almost saying to the people that are there, I don't belong here. I'm so gassed. I don't belong here that I need to get a selfie with everybody. So you're kind of like holding yourself back. And I waited right till the end of the night when there was maybe four people left to go and ask Arsene because I didn't want to look like that guy. Um, but yeah, no, it's, I can't even remember what the original question was, but what would Wenger's role be? Your role, what would you bring him back as? Yeah. Uh, and should he, I mean, should he have a role? Do you think he should have a role? I don't think he should have an official role. Um, I, I just think that it's still too raw. There's still a lot of divide about his responsibility in, Arsenal's decline I think he has a responsibility I don't think he has the sole responsibility but I know a lot of people don't see it like that and so for me would it just add further pressure on the club with all the Wenger outers then piling on Mikel Arteta even more when things go wrong or piling on the club even more when things go wrong because of Arsene Wenger's involvement it just feels like it would be another weight. Although I do think he could add a lot of valuable experience and a lot of valuable advice to two relatively inexperienced guys right now who are leading the, the direction of travel in which our club are headed. So I think there's positives and negatives. I think for me, what I want as a fan and, and just as a fan is just to be able to see Arsene come to games. Mm. Not It doesn't have to be every single week. It doesn't have to be there like Sir Alex Ferguson is at Man United, sitting behind Oli Gunnar Solskjaer every week, adding pressure to him. But I just don't like this feeling. And, and I, when you see the documentary, I think you'll probably feel the same. It makes me feel uneasy and uncomfortable that Arsene Wenger feels that he has no reason to at least come and watch a game at a club that he done so much for. Mm. So I, I just want to see him back in and around the place. I'm not too fussed if that means an official role or if it just means him just being there. Yeah, for me, I think kind of the moment's gone. I think the moment to give him a role would have been when he went, like when when he moved on as manager. If that if he was ever going to get another role at Arsenal, I think it had to be immediately then, like go upstairs, someone else take over um, with their new ideas blended with with kind of the, what Wenger had established. But I, I don't know if I would have wanted that or not, but I, I don't think I probably would have done at the time when he did because I was thinking I was so, not disillusioned, but sort of like I was so done with thinking that it, the Wenger era kind of ended at that point for me and I was thinking Arsenal do need to go in a new direction I don't think we went in the right direction at all like I don't know Emery was not who I wanted to take over but if there was ever going to be a time I think it was probably immediately after he left to then go upstairs but at this point it's you know it's just it was it wouldn't have been right I don't think now so I think we're very much established Edu's doing a good job at technical director I think to uh, you know, blend those two together. I'm not sure it would necessarily work out. And I think Edu on his own with with Arteta's kind of working together there. It's you know they're building that squad that they want to build towards. Um, but you know, and, and when Arteta's asked about that, he's not going to turn around and be like, "Nope, don't want him." <laughs> leave yeah, it, exactly. Leave it out. Like he's not going to say that, is he? So he's going to be polite. He's going to be you know respectful. So you would still say that. Yeah, exactly. He's going to be respectful, and I think. I was saying this on, on my podcast that I did a little bit earlier on and the one we did yesterday. Mm. I think actually the attendance of Arteta, Vinay and Edu at the Premier mm. was a bit of an olive branch being extended to Arsene Wenger as mm. if to say, look, you're not going to come back kind of <laughs> as, a, yeah, as, as a yeah. director or as, as a member of the board. That's not a given. 
but you are part of the history of this football club. We do value you. Mm. And as you say, we, we care. And I think that was really important. And I think what was interesting from being at the Premier was seeing um, Mikel and Edu spend a really long period of time talking with Arsene at the end as well, when everybody else had started to kind of disappear. There was a long conversation that took place between those guys. Um, you could still feel the tension or, or a tension between like mm. those people and David Dean, who is oh, still really? clearly very bitter about the way he left the club. But mm. with Arsene, I think these guys were there to say, you know what, Arsene, we are here. Uh, we do care. And there is no hard feelings. And if you want to attend, you're more than welcome to do so. I genuinely got that feeling. Yeah. Oh, that's that's really interesting. Um, I think it's certainly one that we'll see develop, I suppose, is maybe if he leaves, he's still doing his role at FIFA, as we know, yeah. if that changes, whether or not there is some kind of involvement or whatever. But my prediction will be that I don't think he'll ever be associated in kind of an employed role at the club ever again. Agreed. Um, and I think that he might attend games. I don't think he's attended a game yet since he No, he hasn't. And that's the point. Um, I mean, like I say, I, I don't think he'll he'll come back in an official capacity either. But just, you know, he can work for FIFA and come to a game every now and again. You know, I just think that would be, you know, that would be, it, it's not that we need him there. It's not that he will make a difference to the performance on the pitch, but it just, for me, it'd be a nice way of just drawing a line under all the negativity around Arsene Wenger and, and saying, yeah, you know, you had to go and you did go and, and we're, we're over it, but we also acknowledge all the good things you did and that it would show on his part that there's been mm. a bit of a, a healing process because I feel like from hearing him in the Q&A after the premiere the other night, I, I'm not sure that that healing process from his point of view is, is completely done yet. Mm, yeah, probably not. Probably not. Um, and I, I don't think it would be 22 years and then not allowed to leave at the end of your contract. I think that would hurt him whether or not we think it's the right decision or not at the time, which it's, yeah, it probably went on too long, but uh, it's, uh, it's a, a shame. And I, I mean, you've obviously seen the documentary. I haven't yet. I'm insanely jealous. I mean, when Kai was saying that he was off to the premiere, it was a case of, and, and Chris Wheatley as well, of course, I was doing the show with saying, yep, good for you guys. Enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to watching it on the 22nd. So no spoilers, Harry, but, uh, uh, I, I assume it was very good. Yes, it was a very good uh, piece. Yeah, the only thing I would say is uh, make sure you've got a box of tissues at the ready, man, because it is emotional. It is bloody emotional. <sighs> there you go. Yeah, well, that's a nice way, I think, to finish today's show. Uh, Harry, thanks so much once again, mate. Tell people where they'll be able to find all of this and the next show, of course, as well. Yeah, thank you, man. As always, a pleasure. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Harry Simeon on the Chronicles of Aguna podcast, uh, where you can also download this episode. Uh, but the YouTube stuff, we're jumping from one channel to the other or sharing it, rotating it, whatever the right term is. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, next week we'll be on the Chronicles of Aguna channel. So make sure you come over there. You should be, as I always say, subscribed to both. Therefore, uh, you'll never miss an episode. So uh, get involved. And uh, as always, pleasure. There you go. Link to Chronicles is in the description. So make sure if you haven't subscribed that you go over there and do that. And if you're for some reason not subscribed to either of this, make sure you're subscribed here too. Uh, and I hope you've enjoyed today's content. Please drop a like on the video if you haven't done so already. And if you're wondering that you don't actually have to watch us do this, you just want to listen to us talk about this because, uh, you know, faces for radio and all that, there is a link <laughs> to that in the description. Go to Spotify or SoundCloud or iTunes on either of our channels and you'll be able to listen to all of the shows there as well. I'll see you tomorrow morning for the next 8 a.m. show. And uh, yes, other than that, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you as always. And as always, up the Arsenal. It's the 90 plus minute. All your mates around, and you've got a McNuggets share box ready to go, and you know a late winner's coming. Your mates already got booked for a double dipping, and you steal the last nugget, snatching all three points. Perfection. Order now on the McDonald's app for your McDelivery. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee, and terms apply. See McDonald's.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. Talk sport. Powered by fans.